How are you, friends? Good. Pleasure to see you both. No, we're done, Romans. But we got we got Philippians here. I, I got you. I get you. Uh, we just start. We're starting Philippians right now. There you go. Yeah. All right, y'all. Thank you, Ray. All right, friends. You guys, look. Erin Smith is here. She's our new famous MC. Hey, Erin, you're doing a great job. Woohoo! You guys, uh, this here contains the, the lesson things for every week we do. So Luke, Acts, Romans, and now Philippians. This will always be up front, so any week you miss and you want to grab one, just come, you know, filter through them, get whatever you want. Okay. And did everybody get a Philippians for this morning? Anybody need Philippians? Philippi, Philippi. We're good, good, good? Okay, let's go. So, what we're doing here is every week, my plan is to walk through one book of the New Testament, but most books just get one week. We did, we did Romans for two, but that's kind of a big deal. And most books so far have gotten these kind of like four-page jobbers, but that's because Luke and Acts and Romans are all pretty long. Philippians is four chapters, so I just did this one short. So sometimes it'll be just front and back, sometimes it'll be longer if it's, if it's just a longer book. But in each case, what I want to give you, is we've, we've said this a few times, but what I always want to give you is not an excuse to not read the book, right? This is not like, hey, good news, you don't have to read Philippians, just read this, that'd be terrible. Rather, what I'm trying to do is give you some guideposts, some signs, so that when you read Philippians, you might discover more there than you would have, than you would have if you're just going through it kind of, you know, un, unguided. Kelly and I went to, uh, I don't know if I already used this as an illustration, but Kelly and I went to Costa Rica. When did we do that, babe? Like a month ago? Where'd you go? Kelly, I've lost you. There you are. We, went, we had our 30th anniversary uh, in October, and we have never gone on a vacation without our children, who we love, especially our daughter, Sadie. Um, but we finally got to go on a vacation without any children, and it was terrible without Sadie being there. But <laughs> nevertheless, we got to go on some guided tours of uh, like, you know, national parky things with the millions, millions of animals, none of which we would have seen without our guide, right? Our guide, he just did such an incredible job of showing us things that we would have otherwise missed. And that's all I want to do. It's all there. It's already present in the text. It's already there. But I want to just kind of point out, hey, look at this, look at this. You might, you might see this. So, Philippians. You can look at my list or you can not, but I'd love to give you guys, you guys start me off here. What do you know about Philippians? What are you, walking in this morning, if I said stand up here and give me a five-minute speech on Paul's letter to the Philippians, what would, you, what would you say? It's a happy book. It's a happy letter? It is a happy letter, Diane. How do you know that? Or what, what, can you unpack that a little bit? He's going to tell you how to be happy. Yes. There's one of the recurring terms of Philippians is joy or rejoice, which is just kind of like the noun and the verb form of the same word. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice, right? There's lots and lots about joy, rejoicing. Paul is in a very, very cheerful mood when he writes this letter, right? Absolutely true. What else do we know about Philippians? Anything else? Stuart, real loud, bro. Everybody, you guys are murmuring. Very consequential location where he planted that church because of the way spread the gospel in other areas. It's pretty significant. Okay. And it, it went well. I mean, so the gospel probably spread very quickly through these faithful people. 
That's good. Okay, so what Stuart is saying is that Philippi, so the letter, all these letters, all, all these letters are named after cities. They're basically letters from Paul to a, to a church at a particular location. Philippians is written to the church in Philippi. And Philippi is the leading city of Macedonia. So it's an important city. Usually he's, he tends to write to the important places, but Philippi is an important city. The things that happen there um, matter in the region, and, and, and in particular they matter for one. There's one specific thing that these guys really have going for them. Do you guys know what Philippi, in the, within the Christian church, what Philippi is famous for? What their kind of claim to fame is, so to speak? Have you seen this? I won't tell you if you don't know. Kelly, do you want to say? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, that's exactly right. Kelly's always right. So the, the Philippians are, um, they're, they're famous for their generosity. They're not often called the Philippians. They are usually called the Macedonians. And I'll, I'll show you this in a little bit. But this is a church, Paul loves these guys. I'm going to say they're Paul's second favorite. You guys know who Paul's seemingly favorite? Which of Paul's letters is the warmest, the most effusive, the most relationally drenched? You know, Thessalonians. Who said that? Good job, doctor. Okay, yeah. I think Thessalonians, when you, when you read, if you read 1 Thessalonians, you're like, man, Paul loves these guys. You read the Corinthians, and you're like, oh, these guys are kind of annoying, all right? But the Philippians, he, there's an enormous amount of warmth. I would say second, second only to the Thessalonians, but it's enormous Goodwill, cheerfulness, warmth, love. He loves these guys. Okay, anything else you want to start with? Anything else you know about the letter to the Philippians? Throw in there. Yeah, Robin. Yes, okay, very good. So Paul, this is one of what we call Paul's prison epistles, right? So Paul, he, he makes explicit here that he's in jail while he writes it, which is so interesting because it, that, that kind of juxtaposed with this cheerful, cheerful letter. Like if I wrote you a letter from prison, you can bet it would be a grouchy letter, okay? Like, I would not be a happy man in prison. But Paul was like, you know what? It doesn't matter because the fact that I'm in prison gives me unique access to share the gospel with everybody else who's in prison. So game on. The dude just sees life through this very odd lens, okay? So here's some big stuff. So let's, let's take a look at the, at the document. So the theme of the letter is joy. I'll just give you some of these quotes. Listen, he says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Uh, he says, um, I'll continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that, throwing through, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow. Make my joy complete. Welcome in the Lord with great joy. It's not just that Paul is happy, but he's trying to be infectious with his happiness. It's a letter of great joy. And by the way, I'm gonna, just to pick a fight, we'll do this very briefly. I'm not even going to prove my case. I'm just going to assert it. Joy and happiness are the same thing. Okay? There is this weird Christian myth that is completely nonsense. That joy is godly and exalted and high and free of circumstances. And happiness is humanish and base and lowly and unworthy. And it is garbage. You've been taught it your whole life. Half of you are probably thinking I'm wrong. And but I'm not, and the, it does not exist. The distinction between happiness and joy that is often supposed has absolutely zero biblical warrant. What Paul is talking about here is happiness, mirth, joy, 
a sense of well-being, gladness. The Bible uses all these terms completely interchangeably. It's Oswald Chambers' fault that you think otherwise. And sweet, sweet Oswald was wrong about that. Okay? We can talk about it some other time. I'll try to prove it to you when we have more time. Okay? It's a letter of happiness. It's a letter of joy. Okay? A couple other major themes, as I said, it's incredibly affectionate. If you just look, I thank my God every time I remember you. It's right for me to feel this way about you. Since I have you in my heart, I long for you with the affection of Christ. You who I love and long for. Like, he is incredibly... Hey, Julie. How you doing? So great. Glad you're here. So, um, so much warmth that just permeates the letter. He loves these guys. And then the final thing that if you're looking for, like, to characterize it, not to describe it, just to characterize it, it's a very, very hopeful letter. He's in prison. He's very cheerful. He loves these people. And he still is saying... The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Um, some of you guys know that I'm a big fan of Jonathan Edwards. And uh, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon once that was just so brilliant about why Christians should be the happiest people in the world. Does anybody, we've talked about this. Does anybody remember his three-point island for why Christians should be the happiest people in the world? This is all basically drawn out of Romans 8. But Edwards says, and I think Paul is living out, for Christians... Our bad things turn out for good. God works all things together for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purposes. Our good things can never be taken away, right? Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. And then finally, the best is yet to come. Our bad things turn out for good. Our good things can never be taken away. And the best is yet to come. That perspective permeates Paul's letter to the Philippians. He's like, it's, this looks rough, but not to worry. God will use it for good. I love you guys. We're in this together. I want you to be happy. And I'm telling you, unimaginable happiness lies ahead in the future. Okay? We, as you read through Philippians, see if you don't notice those, those sorts of threads, those sorts of themes, those sorts of concepts. Okay? So far so good? Anybody want to push back on any of that? Questions? Pull on a thread. Good, good, good? Okay. Then, what I want you to notice here, it is chiefly a thank you note. So we've, I've used the, the term before for you guys that Paul's letters are occasional. Remember that occasional doesn't mean they're intermittent. What does it mean? Written for a purpose, written for an occasion. The occasion for this is it's a thank you note. Which, and the reason he's written them a thank you note, as Kelly pointed out, is because they're incredibly generous givers. Now, he doesn't really get to his point until chapter 4. But the, 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 the occasion that spawned the writing of this letter is that they sent him a bunch of money. It's a letter that expresses one of the reasons I think it's so cheerful, so happy, so warm, so affectionate is because the Philippians have been so generous to him. And in fact, if you open or you know, there's no open. Just flip it over. Take a look at this. I want you to see this. Go to this top right corner. Um, this church is discussed glowingly in 2 Corinthians 8. This is, this is not to the Philippians. This is about the Philippians, but you might miss that it's about the Philippians because here he calls them Macedonians. It would be a little bit like calling us here in Roanoke Virginians, okay? But we are the Virginians about whom he is speaking, okay? You with me? So he says this, 2 Corinthians 8. He says, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. Out of their most severe trial, their overflowing generosity and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity, which is so odd, right? 
For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us, keeping with God's will. This feature here that we're seeing that Paul is talking about the church to the Philippians, the church of the Philippians, the church in Philippi. He's talking about that in the letter to the church in Corinth. I think is a helpful thing to notice. So as you read through this, right, you're going through, we're looking, we're trying to follow Philippians internally, like what's the flow of argument? I want to get Philippians. I want to understand Luke. I want to know where he's going in Romans, all those things. But don't get so contained to your little box that you're just following Philippians. But notice that the letter of the church in Philippi is going to reference people. It's going to talk about Timothy. Who's Timothy? What else does Timothy do? He's going to talk about, he's going to talk about these people in the letter Second Corinthians. He's going to talk about, we're going to watch, he doesn't, he's not, but Luke is going to talk about the creation of this church in the book of Acts. And if in your mind you can begin to form a map of like, oh, oh, I get it. When I'm reading, you know, Acts and we get to the point where Paul goes to Philippi, begins to preach the gospel and a church is formed, you in your mind can think, oh, I think I'm going to pause my reading of Acts. I'm going to go read Philippians and try to get a little bit of context for this because it's all true, you guys. It's all a map. These are real people that had real things happen and they had real relationships. There were real falling outs. There were real conflicts that occurred. There were real challenges they faced and that they overcame. The Philippians are being given as an example to the Corinthians to exhort the Corinthians to kind of get off, you know, get on their game. All of that intermapping is just useful for you to see. So just notice some of those things, right? When you read 2 Corinthians and he says Macedonians, think Philippians. Or when you read, when you read in, if you're reading like an introduction to Philippi, you're like, oh, that's in Macedonia. I wonder if that's who he was talking about over here. Just start to build those things in your brain, okay? And then similar to that, it does. I included for you here the little linkage in Acts. Take a look over in that top left column. Acts 16 says this. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, which makes you think Philippi, right? Standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, reference to what Stuart said earlier, and we stayed there several days. Okay? So, I'm telling you, it's all connected. It's all, there's a map here, and then if you learn, just kind of see it, I think it'll be, I think it'll be more, it'll give more value to you to make those connections. Okay? How are we doing? Questions about any of that? Am I moving too quick? Okay. That's all the super big stuff that's like high level. But I want you to also see, when you read through Philippians, there's a couple of, I will say, shapes that I want you to notice that permeate this book. Okay? Does anybody have a sense? I'm curious. If, oh, I, sh- I wanted to ask you this when we started. I forgot to ask you. Is, any, is Philippians anybody's favorite book in the New Testament? Anybody have a particular? Sharon, you'd say that? Philippians is your favorite book? Okay, are you comfortable saying why? Like, what, what, is there a passage or is there something there that, or maybe you let us study on it or something, but what, why do you love Philippians? You won't hear me. I heard that. That was good. You just be brief and then I'll repeat you. All right. This is kind of strange, but before I was attending a church and I was in a Bible study just trying to soak up what other people had that I didn't have. Chapter of the group, and I panicked, but I don't, you know, I didn't say I don't 
Okay, I'm not that when I when I when I began, I'm not surprised that's where that story went. And I heard you guys hear her, okay? Hear all that? Like, the reason you love the book, I mean, it could be, but there's something in there that's some sweet gem, right? But the, so often the things that we love are the things we just have experience with. I remember like when I when I preached on Titus. The reason we're even doing this series is because I preached on Titus. I'm like, I'm just gonna do an overview of Titus one Sunday. That was just a random one-off, but I really had fun doing it. So I'm like, I want to do that 26 more times, right? And <laughs> But the reason I started with Titus is because I love Titus. And the reason I love Titus is just because my first year of marriage, I just decided I would study it. And I, if I decided to study Galatians, I'd probably just like Galatians, right? But I did it and I became familiar with it. His contours became familiar and that made me love it. And that's the same thing that happened for you. You studied Philippians and then it began to give up its secrets to you and that became a sweet thing, okay? Now for all of you, Philippians, whatever, whatever you've done, is there any part of Philippians that is, is there any passage that stands out to you as supreme in this book? Yeah, Nancy? Philippians 4, 8, 8 and 9 often get quoted. You want, do you have it memorized or do you want to quote it for us? Yes. Finally, whatever is By all means. About such things, yes. All right, Philippians 4, 8, 9. Lots of folks have got that memorized. Catherine, favorite part of Philippians? Yeah, the word rejoice is probably my favorite word of all times. And um, the, the scripture that says uh, rejoice, again I say rejoice, it has, that has grounded me. And um, turn, it's like t- turning the Titanic around in the midst of trial. Yeah. So rejoice. And, and then he said, let your gentleness be made known to all. And that speaks to just like settle down and holding you everything. Yeah. Rejoicing. It's so I just get up in there and just wrap the quilt around me and just. Yes. And then I do it. it like it draws me to actually do it. And then. And then I've discovered, you know, that don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. There you go. That's scripture match. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. You may recognize that, right? This passage that immediately precedes what Nancy read. This, and lots of us, have you ever repeated Philippians 4, 6, and 7 to yourself? Like, like this is like standard Christianity of like, don't be anxious about anything and everything through prayer and petition. Present, you know, like, like how many times have I comforted or consoled myself with, with that passage, right? Very good. Okay, favorite part of it, John? Uh, Philippians uh, chapter 2, uh, uh, 5 through 11. Have this attitude of yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, yeah. who although he existed in the form of not 
death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above heaven. But at the name of Jesus, have a niche bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the And that every country confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. That passage that John just read is known as the Christ hymn, and it's probably the case that Paul didn't, it's not original to Paul. When you find poems in the New Testament, it, there's a couple of different passages, like 1 Corinthians 15 has one of these, Philippians 2 has one, where we understand these, to, this, is, this might be the, early, the oldest extant example of a Christian hymn. Now, it's possible that Paul wrote it, but it seems like it's more likely that he simply quoted it. This was a song they sang. It would be like if I got up here and recited the lyrics to crown him with many crowns, right? And you would, you would know that I wasn't, I didn't write that song, but we sang it last Sunday kind of a thing, right? That's what this is. This Christ hymn is maybe the oldest Christian hymn, right? And when I said that what I want you to see is a couple shapes, this is, this is the quintessential picture of the V-shaped gospel okay watch listen watch the watch the flow watch the the physical direction of this thing okay he says your attitude should be the same as that of christ jesus who being in very nature god okay we're high it's exalted but he didn't consider equality with god something to be grasped it begins to slip it begins to lower he makes himself nothing what taking the very nature of a servant he's made in human likeness he's found an appearance as a man he humbles himself, becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. See this, the, the madness of this descent from the highest place down to the lowest place. As he humbles himself to death, even death on a cross. But then it's a V, right? It's not just a diagonal line. And then, therefore, God exalts him to the highest place. And he gives him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This pattern is, I think, I think this, it's hard to say, this might be the most important passage in the book of Philippians, right? This framework here, because not just, not just for these handful of verses, but this permeates Paul's understanding of the world. Because the V-shaped journey of Christ is the journey that we are to follow. And Jesus says things like this all over the place. The way up is down. If you want to save your life, you must lose your life. This is the path, right? The, when, this, when Satan says to Jesus, bow, bend down and bow, you know, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. What he's saying is skip the V. Just take it. Just exalt yourself. Just reign and become king. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. That's not what he does. He doesn't go from here, from height to height. He goes from height to the very lowest place. And from there, God propels him to the very highest place. It's absolutely central, if you're going to understand Paul's writing, is the V-shaped gospel. And once you've understood the writing of it, which is frankly not the point, then you begin to realize, oh my goodness, I hate the letter V. <laughs> like, I don't want to do that, but what if I did? What if I was willing to go to the lowest place? What if I, who am not equal with God, but consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
were to realize that I'm not, and I should let it go even if I had it, and go to the lowest place. If we were to follow this, the shape of the, the, shape of the letter V that Paul is advocating here, I think it would be magnificently uh, significant in the world. It's what we are invited to do. But it is hard, is it not? It's super hard. You don't want to do that. That's what Jesus has done, okay? Now, knowing that it's hard, Paul is going to give us a couple of helpers throughout this letter. Because one of the things that permeates this letter as well is examples. Have you noticed, like, who? There are chiefly four people that Paul says, Behold, this is what we meant. Who are the four? Who are the four examples of Philippians? A couple of them are easy, a couple of them are hard. Okay. Timothy and Epaphroditus, right? And that's listed here. I'll show you those in a second. Who are the other two? Paul himself. Paul himself. Very good. And one more. Did you say Jesus? Because it's Jesus, okay? These are the four, right? And so when you read through Philippians, it's a very, it's a very um, incarnational letter, right? He's not just giving you like doctrinal theory. He's saying, look at Timothy. Look at me. Look at Jesus. Look at that other dude. His name is Epaphroditus. Is that it? How do you say his name? Right? Look at these people. Look at what they're doing. So look, look, look at the way he describes Timothy. I have this for you here. He says, well, in, th- in chapter 3, he says, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of others, those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Hear that language? The pattern, the shape. Like, it's like we're, remember like, I don't know, in the 50s when none of us, when I wasn't alive, where they were like, Paper footprints on the floor to teach you how to dance, right? That, that's the pattern, right? That's what he's doing. He's saying, follow the pattern, follow the pattern, follow the V-shaped gospel. Listen to what he says about Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to see you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him soon as I see how things go with me. I'm confident in the Lord Jesus that I myself will come soon. It's the V-shaped gospel. Everybody is up here, and they're like, I'm just going to serve myself. I'm just going to stay up here. But Timothy doesn't consider his own needs to be the primary. He serves others. He's going to neglect what's good for himself and do what's good for others and therefore, Paul says, he, isn't he the best? And he exalts him. And he says, this is the pattern. This is the guy. This is who you want to be like. Right? V-shaped gospel. Same thing, Epaphroditus. He's going to say, I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and he almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. That's not an insult. He knew that he generally was their, was their helper. Once again, and this is maybe subtle until you, learn, until you see this, V-shaped gospel. What happens to Epaphroditus? He's doing fine. What, what, what comes of him? Sick. He gets sick. 
He almost dies. This is, you are meant to hear language in, a, in his description of Epaphroditus of death and resurrection. This is the pattern. This is what Christianity looks like. We go to, we enter risk. We suffer loss. We neglect ourselves. We serve others. And then God brings the restoration. He brings the resurrection. He brings the exaltation. I'm telling you, it's, it's everywhere in Paul's letters. And it's particularly present here in Philippians. Okay, how you doing? Catherine. Um, Philippians 2 and 3, it's anchor. It's one that I have to talk about going down to the beat. I have to go here a lot because it says do nothing out of selfish ambition. So right there I have to look and see what are my motives for doing it. And the other thing is in humility which I don't have, so I have to go to God to get some of that. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but look to the interests, put other people's interests ahead of my own. That is like the whole book. I mean, just like... That's right. Spend a lot of time in it, and I wish I did spend it. And of course, I mean, not just to beat this horse absolutely to death, but the invitation that we would consider other needs more important than our own, we would be like Christ. He's saying, he's explicitly saying, Go live the V-shaped gospel, right? Go, go to the lowest place. Trust the Lord to exalt you to the highest place, but you go be like him. So there's T Timothy, Epaphroditus, there's Paul, there's Jesus, and then there's supposed to be Marco, right? There's supposed to be Suzanne. There's supposed to be Tom. It's supposed to be us, that we are to follow that, okay? Now, here's what I want you to do. I have, okay, I got 15 minutes. I want to save this. Don't look at your sheet. Put it away. Hide it. Crumple it up. Throw it away. Get out your Bible, Okay, because I want to give you guys a chance to make a discovery on something that I think is difficult. Okay, so don't look at the cheat sheet. There's information here. Don't cheat, you sinners. <laughs> Philippians 4. Listen to what Paul says. He says, I'm not saying this because I am in need. You're in, you're in your actual Bible in Philippians 4.11. For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Okay? So Paul says, I know a secret. But he doesn't. Well, maybe he does. He doesn't make explicit what the secret is. He says, I know a secret. If you, want to, if you want to get out of this world, you want to survive this place, and you want to be able to have a transcendent joy. Remember, it's a letter of joy. It's a letter of happiness. If you want to, have, if you want to figure out the secret of contentedness, of durable joy, I know what it is. But then he doesn't say what it is. It's like, Paul, come on, okay? So here's your mission. I want you to take just three minutes at your table. Look at Philippians 4. Don't look at your sheets. And what's the secret what is Paul saying is the secret? Now, I will give you, a key, give you a clue. The very next verse is often thought to be the secret. I don't think it is. But you can start there and then work your way around, all right? So give it three minutes. What's the secret of durable joy? Okay? And you get three minutes on your own. <laughs> Giving. Giving. 
same place I was going. You cheat? Oh no, David, you didn't. You flip to the back of the book. I think it's the default, but I don't think it's right. Just stay on it. What's up, Pooback? for you guys to kind of get in there a little bit. What's the secret? What is the secret to being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want? Yeah, Robin? Trusting in God. Super loud, what? Trusting in God, who God is, and that he's in control and he's got you. Okay, trusting that God is in control, he's got you. Okay, and are you getting that from 413? Or something else? <coughs> Okay, and you're and you're 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 going to four nineteen. God will meet all your needs in Christ Jesus. Is that where you're going, Suzanne? Okay. So the expression of gratitude, perhaps. Okay. Yes. Okay. Virgil. Yeah, I would propose that it is in uh, back in Philippians one. 
call this the God's retirement plan. Yeah. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I can go on living in the body, this will be fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. I think he's there to serve. He's figured out that being there to serve, serve the people around him, wherever he is, and what, what Virgil's comment there has really to commend itself is that that's a specific example. Paul is saying in chapter 4, if I go left, if I go right, it's cool either way, right? And back in chapter 1, he's like, hey, well, here's a couple of options. I live or I die, win-win, right? And so that follows the pattern that he's setting up of I'm happy this way, I'm happy that way. How does it work? Like, how do we get to that happiness both ways? That's excellent. Let's keep going. A couple more thoughts, and I'll try to glue it all together. First, Kelly... Yep. Uh, all these things are dependent on our union with Christ. And so, mm. the best work is that even the, even the bad things turn out for good. In union with Christ, I want to glue what you're saying about union with Christ to what Virgil said, too. So we'll get there. Keep going. Do you want more? Well, just that's Yes. Wait, wait, you're fading a little bit. Go, say that last sentence louder. Peace or joy or contentment, and whatever, whether we live or die, what Virgil is saying is because of our union. Yeah. Okay, our un- union with Christ is going to be an absolutely key thing here. Yep, Lily? Yeah, the, the verses that kind of do those things together, too. You've got chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And the mind of Christ is exactly that him, the V shaped gospel. These are all, these are excellent. All, that he is, in some way, our union to him, knowing him, being in him. Him being, oh, and I skipped this at the very beginning. If you go through it, he's going to argue that Christ is our life. He is our mind. He is our goal. He is our strength. This is a very Christocentric letter. For, for, for sure, for sure. Very good. And there was one more. Who would I see a hand? Judy? Everything can be utilized to the great end of his life. He's like, hey, good motives, bad motives, in prison, free, no problem. It's all operational for me because I understand that I'm on mission. Okay, very good. Marco gets the last comment, and then I'll try to, like, glue it together. Well, from number two, uh, chapter, I guess, verse 12, it says... You're in 412? Yeah, 412. So it says, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. 
everywhere, I, everywhere and in all things, I'm instructed. So it's like we're told to be content. Yes. It's because the Lord said yeah, we're, so we're told to be content. Paul himself is going to say, "Rejoice in the Lord." It's, it's, there's actually a demand to be happy, right? Which is like sometimes like, well, how do I do that exactly? Okay, which is the whole point. Okay, here let me take. I think so many really good remarks, but I'm almost out of time. Here's what I want to say. I think the secret that glues all these things together is this: it's what we would call the cruciform life. Okay, cruciform. Do you hear that? It's the shape, the form of the cross. It's the cruciform life. Paul understands it. it is, this is, I promise you, it's everywhere in his letters. It permeates this, this book. Is that we, if, we will just swallow it and say, my life is to be lived in the shape of the cross. Once you make that decision, everything else just flows. Jesus' life, the shape of Jesus' life, it's a cross-shaped life. We have a V, we have a cross. And once we understand, oh, 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 I get it. This is how Christianity works. It is all about resurrection. But resurrection is predicated on death. And so whatever's happening this particular day, if I'm, if I'm being raised, I love that part. And I can be happy. But if I'm dying, no problem. Because I know what comes after death. If I accept the cruciform shape of Christianity. If I'm like, it is a, we are dying little deaths all the time, but I know what comes after death is resurrection, then whether we're dying or whether we're living, we're good because we know how this story ends and we enter into death. Not only, not only can we, but we will because the only way to be raised is to die. It's what he says in Philippians 3, 10 and 11. Listen to this. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And don't you as well? But how do you get resurrection, friends? You got to die. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, to attain the resurrection of the dead. Watch for this whatever you're, whenever you're reading Paul. It shows up over and over and over. He believes that the Christian life is a willful entrance into death that anticipates a joyful raising to resurrection. He said, here's another example, 2 Corinthians 4. There's a million of these. I just picked one. We who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, listen, you know, we are willing, he said the same thing as the Thessalonians, it happens with the Ephesians. He's gonna say, we enter into death so that you can be partakers of life, right? And this is the very nature of the gospel. Jesus enters into death so that we will be raised with him. And Paul is saying, the secret of getting through this world, which have you noticed is riddled with death, is stop being freaked out by the death part. Like, just take it. That's the deal. We enter into death, but not, not, as hopeless, not with hopeless resignation, but with joyful anticipation of the resurrection that is coming. I think that's the secret. I'm being content on the way down and content on the way up. Gary? What you're describing sounds like a V-shape, not a cross-shape. 
So can you explain the cruciform? Yeah, sure. So certainly, that, that the, like, so the cross is the way down, right? So the, when we call it the cruciformity, the, the, we like the way up, right? Obviously, the second stroke of the V is the good part. But in order to get the, the way up is down. And so the, it's, if, if, I don't know, if you had a V, there's a cross beam on the first arm of it, you know? Like the way down is the cross and then the way up is the resurrection. So you're right that we are, we, we live the entirety of the V, but the part that we have to make a conscious decision to embrace is the downstroke, which is the cross. Does that, am I mixing my metaphors too much here? I'm picturing a, a cross, which is straight up and it's yeah. cross. But what you're describing to me doesn't seem like a cross shape. It sounds like a V shape. Well, yeah. So, but the, 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 the choosing to being like Christ to going down is an embracing of death, which we represent with the death of Christ on a cross. So, yeah. So, good. Okay. We're almost done. Catherine. The seed, a seed must fall into the ground. Yep. Before it can. Jesus says this over and over and over again, right? That death is the prerequisite for life. The resurrection comes out of crucifixion, all that thing, okay? So if you go back and you read Philippians, you can read this thing in like 10 minutes. It's short. But watch, watch for the joy. Watch for the affection. Watch for the V-shaped gospel. Watch for the examples. And then, of course, it's not just so we would be smart, you know, at trivia in the book, but so that it will matter when you go out to work on Monday and you start dying little deaths, some of which won't seem so little, right? That's the secret of being content, okay? Next week, we're going to do James. If you want to kind of pre, if you want to read Philippians and then pre-read James, that's what's coming. And if you need any of uh, these notes, they're all up here. Thank you very much. Yes.